welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Three, two, one, and we're off to the moon. Are you into this uh, Elon Musk uh, rocket stuff? Um, I was a lot more. I haven't really followed it in a while, but summer 2020 when they had the manned uh, the manned rocket to the spaceship, like I watched it live and I was like getting emotional. I was like hey. tearing up. I was like, man, what's wrong with me? I don't know. Hey, it's exciting. I'm like, we're going, we're going back to space. <laughs> there. Uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, just the whole idea. Did something new just happen to you? No. You, oh, no, no. Yeah. I just know that he's in the SpaceX. Oh, because we're, we're trying to get to the moon, and then we're going to Mars, and then... Well, you know what? I should say something new happened. As I don't know if it's like a promotional thing, but they um, put one of the rockets over there by Dish Network off of the South Platte. You'll have to go see it. I'm going to bike past that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, wow. so, yeah, look... Look from the bike path on South Platte up um, toward the Dish Network building. You know what that is? Dish Network one? No. It's at like um, Bowles. Okay. So does it like have a distinct building or is it just a red brick building? No, it's this huge, long, um, used to be a River Point Mall. Um, It's got skylights all across the top. Big, big building. I'll look for the rocket ship and know what the building is. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like half of the rocket ship with the thrusters and stuff. It's cool. Okay. Did you want to be an astronaut growing up? I did. Oh, I think yeah. Every kid did. I wanted to for sure. I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, just the thought of weightlessness and seeing the world from space. And I think just the adventure. Is it the adventure? Like, I, I was fascinated by space. Like, yeah. I wanted to be an astronomer at one point and uh, went to the library and got a book and Tried reading it, and it was so complex. I was like in third grade, and the numbers were so big, and I had no idea what was going on. That's not even a real number. That's just a squiggly line. Oh, no. And there was tens to the millions, and I, it was like I brought it back to the library, and the librarian said, what, is, what are you reading this for? This is a college textbook, young man. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to do it. And I gave up on my dream then and there. Uh, do not aim for things too high for you. That's right. <laughs> Psalm 131. I love it. Uh, I, second this grade. This is Father Mike. Oh, yeah. And Deacon Jacob. Sorry. We, we just jumped right in. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. The moon. We don't plan on this stuff, but. No. We have no consistency. When it takes off. I was on a overnight school field trip to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science when I was, I think it was second grade. It might have been first grade. And it was kind of freaky because it was an overnight thing. Oh, and you've yeah. been to the museum here, right? Uh-huh. So you know where they've got all the like the stuffed anim- like the real animals, but they're like taxidermied behind the glass and stuff? Uh-huh. That's where we slept. We slept, like there was like 40 classes of oh, kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's just this, this is like the Colorado history and all the, yeah. the wildlife of yeah, Colorado. Yeah, so there's all these, yeah, just like animals and whatever else uh, behind glass in displays. And... They turn the lights off, except for there's still kind of like some lights in the displays. So you just get like these shadowy figures, like these. It's like a buffalo standing buffaloes, bison, you know, wildcat. Uh, I think there, there's a there's a woolly mammoth in one of them or something. Oh, I don't know. No, dude, so, that's gonna that was that's gonna freaky. be some fun dreams. It's but, either like Ice Age and really fun, like Pixar, or it's terrifying. Or, yeah. <laughs> but the uh, the speaker that night was an astronaut, and cool. he'd never been 
to space, but he was a NASA astronaut. So he came and talked about the process to become an astronaut and all the scientific classes that he had to take and all of the physical training he had to do oh, and all this stuff. And we thought he was the coolest guy in the world. Oh, he is the he coolest was. guy. There and are very few astronauts, I think. Yeah. Well, around you know, less than 50 probably, actually, like ready to go. I don't know. Don't don't uh, quote me on that. I met, um, like last year, there was a group of maybe six or seven that introduced themselves after Mass at the cathedral one Sunday. And they were uh, attending a conference. Um, they were from all over the United States, and they were attending a conference for um, space athletics or space um, <laughs> fitness or something like that. So they're developing all the technology and research around how to keep those astronauts fit. Yeah. And I was amazed. I was like, how many people are in that business? But it <laughs> sounded like hundreds were at the conference. So I've seen, uh, I watched the IMAX film. It was, um, I can't remember what they call it, but it was from the space station. It was like a year in the space station. And I remember seeing they've got this like treadmill with a device that clamps onto their torso and holds them in place. Yeah. So as the treadmill goes, they can like keep running on it, but they're running at like zero G with so like this, floating. this like pressure or like a clamp to kind of hold you down towards it. It was kind of You don't know if you're upside down or <laughs> right side up. But yeah, I, I do love space. I would get lost in space. Our podcast, I don't know, we got a pretty good reach. So if there's any astronauts out there and you're planning the trip to Mars, uh, you need some priests. Yeah, two of them right here. I think. Hey, man, we'd we'd be ready to go. Well, companions are supposed to go together, but yeah, we'd let's do it. <laughs> Colonize. I uh, have to become uh, astronauts, astronaut priest. I've always dreamed to be in, um, kind of like training myself to to make first contact. Like I'm a linguist, priest, you know, pretty you're, good with people. Pretty, I don't think I have the qualifications, but other than to not let you go alone. Okay, but you're going to be the one that they pick. Well, I'm talking like meet the aliens. Oh, when they come here, yeah. But yeah. when we get to Mars, there's going to be aliens, you know? Yeah, all kinds. You'll be the first bishop of Mars. Mars attacks. <laughs> um, I think it'd be cool. I mean, there's some, some kind of ethical questions, I think, about how risky is it to, like how, how much exposure is there? Are you likely to live? Is it wise to go? That kind of stuff. And do you wait until there's like families on colonized on the moon or do you just yeah. go to be a chaplain to the astronauts know. what about the the great explorers that sailed to the west and were they going to fall off the edge of the earth that's right were they going to find something yeah uh, did they have chaplains <laughs> i actually don't know because I, I do know the um down in lisbon a catholic thing you should know uh down in lisbon the uh great embarkment um of Oh, I can't remember the the explorer now. <laughs> Great Portuguese explorer, Christopher um, Columbus. No, he he did the uh, he tried to circumnavigate, um, but he died right before the end. I don't know. Um, the, Mario Vespucci. No, oh man. I anyway, it might come to me too. I, I think Great I Portuguese uh, explorer set off his. He tried to circumnavigate the world, and he didn't quite make it, but the ship did, and. Um, they embarked from this small little port outside of Lisbon, and there was a tiny little uh, monastery there. And then after the Portuguese became 
incredibly wealthy with their new trade routes all over the world and their their armada the king said we're gonna we're gonna really build this up and so now you've got one of the most beautiful monastery complexes in the Uh. world was built up as like this uh this you know remembrance of gratitude of of the first place where these sailors set uh set sail from and they had spent the night in prayer the night in vigil at the chapel at the little monastery the before they embarked and then that's cool. I was going to say it's kind of ironic because monastery famously means you're not going anywhere. <laughs> and then, in, but their their <laughs> care, the adventure of prayer. Yeah, and their their particular care was for the sailors coming in and out. Wow. Um, uh, they're the spiritual care of the sailors in and out. So um, there's a there's a military archdiocese. So that reminds me of like navy chaplains. Uh, yeah, we've got a couple friends of those. T- Father Tony Davis. Yeah, that's navy right. chaplain going to be. Did you ever think Curtis of that? Wire? Um, not, not very hard. I don't know. I just didn't feel called to it. Like I sympathized with the appeals. They always come to the seminary and say, we don't have enough priests. Military has lots and lots of Catholics and not enough priests on the, to serve the Catholics on the bases and out on ships and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And I certainly care. And, you know, I'd like to help the way that I can. But I always felt called to um, life in Colorado, serving the church in Colorado. So I was thinking of Vasco da Gama and Ferdinand Vasco Magellan. Da Gama. Yeah, so Magellan. Vas- Magellan was the one that tried to yeah. circumnavigate. Vasco da Gama was the one. So I, had to, I had to look this up. I, I don't have this off the top of my mind, obviously. Vasco no, da Gama. Magellan, everybody knows yeah, Magellan. Everybody knows Magellan. Vasco da Gama was the first to sail India to Europe, or uh, Europe to India and back. Uh. And he was he was the one that embarked that the kind of the uh, monastery his his team uh, prayed in vigil there before. But do then, you know when Magellan went? Did he go across the Atlantic or did he go around the Horn of Africa and that you know all the way out to the Philippines and then try to cross? Pacific? I'm pretty sure the the route that they were discovering was they were doing the Horn of Africa and then back up and around, and they kept pushing that. I'm assuming that's the way he went, but I'd have to I'd have yeah. to really look. I did discover I was that Pacific would be a monster. Yeah, I was reading the uh, the getting into ancient history, biblical history, even which is where we're going on this podcast. Let's go. So, um, the Philistines, or the they were kind of Greek, right, of sorts. Yeah, it's hard to know. Were they Phoenician? Um, sorry, Some, so, yeah, the Phoenician, Phoenician Philistines. Um, but there was, uh, I can't remember if it was the Philistines or the Phoenicians or, but there was some, there's some connection of the, um, the sailors of, is it Tyre and Sidon were were ship ship builders? Yeah. Yeah. So they're Phoenician. Um, there's some evidence, archeological evidence that they got down pretty far into the Cape of Africa. Oh, really? Uh, with their ships and some of the trade routes that, in the ancient world. Whoa. So maybe, maybe Vasco da Gama wasn't the first. Yeah, right. Um, the Phoenicians were wild that way. Yeah, there's they ruins. They would just push to the ends Spain of Spain and yeah. Sicily, so, everywhere. Um, yeah, that is not, uh, this, the evidence of my, my lack of preparation is coming through. Today's, well, you, what do you got to know about <laughs> the Phoenicians? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Today's episode, um, 
could be called Jake read some stuff in a book that if you talk to him for 10 minutes, it'd sound impressive. But when you talk to a biblical scholar, you realize he read 20 pages in a book. No, no, that's the <laughs> setup. That's the setup. That's not going to be the case. <laughs> so I respect anyone who reads more than a page in a book. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. I can do that. Uh, so I'm glad I've got you on today, Father Mike, because I've got some questions. I've got some reflections, particularly on the book of Daniel. Yeah. Because we've been, we're in the middle of the week where we read the book of Daniel. That's right. Uh, This is year one cycle of the lectionary. The last week before Advent is the book of Daniel. And is it just this year? Because I was wondering if that just happens to be the the point in the lectionary cycle that we're at, or if it's meant to correspond with the um, Christ the King and moving, because the book of Daniel sets up the whole kingdom yep. of God motif. Every 34th week of Ordinary Time, cycle A, you're going to get Daniel. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then year B is book of Revelation, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, so there's already this connection between book of Daniel, who's kind of like the the grandfather of the apocalyptic literature, and then the apocalypse, the Revelation, book of Revelation from uh, St. John. And the church, in situating them in the liturgical year, 34th week of ordinary time, last week leading up to Advent, after we've celebrated uh, Sunday of Christ the King. Yeah, because um, it's kind of like the... Yeah, the trippy in-between of kind of the end of the story and the setup for and the beginning, and the of beginning the all at the same time. So I preached on the uh, this Tuesday the great uh, prophetic work of or the interpretive work of Daniel when King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he needs interpreted. And so he calls all his wise men in, the Magi and his court, and he says, I want you guys to interpret this dream, but so I know that you're actually interpreting it properly, I want you to tell me what the dream is and then interpret it. That's it. And they're like, oh, if we get this wrong, you're going to kill us because that's what you do, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the king of kings. You're just going <laughs> to get frustrated and kill us if we don't get it right. That's what he does. So why don't you tell us what your dream was so we can interpret it? And he's like, no, I want to know this is a true interpretation, so tell me the dream and interpret it. Then somebody's like, hey, we've got this guy, Daniel. He's this Israelite that we brought here. He's, he's done some cool stuff before. Uh, why, don't, why don't you bring him in? And so he asked for some time to pray. He goes and he prays. He's like, God, you got to give this to me. Yeah, yeah, That's the only on? way, right? And God reveals the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and then he interprets it. And this dream is the idol, the big statue made of four metals, the top, statue, or top head of it. Let me see if I can get him. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Iron, iron mixed with clay, kind of. Right. So the gold represents the kingdom, the empire of Babylon, that they're in. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, the ruler of the empire. And this is the Near East, kind of the the Babylonian, the Persian, uh, and then the Greeks move in there, and then finally the Romans. And those are the four. So Babylonians were the gold, represented by the gold. The silver was then the Persians and Medes kind of a joint empire. Then you've got the Greeks come in. Finally, the the Romans are represented by the iron. And then what happens to the statue? A stone. A big stone comes and crushes it. Now, I'd have to say for for the historians here that this is 
debated which kingdoms. Exactly. You know, We're it, getting well, there. Okay. No, well, I want to bring it up. Give me the debate. Well, so Nebuchadnezzar, although in the story it's confused, he was technically the king of Assyria. And so he, um, or kind of the Assyrian was like the strong kingdom that preceded the Babylonian mm-hmm. um, conquer. And then, yeah, like you're saying, the Persian and then the Greeks. So it could be these four are Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Um, or, as you said, and I think that's probably right in the book of Daniel, that it's uh, Babylon, Persia, and then Greeks yeah. and the Romans. So this, I want to get into this. This is the interesting part for me, is um, it's debated, and it's more recently debated. It's kind of contemporary scholars that are de- saying it's, well, it's probably Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and they didn't mm-hmm. even know about the Roman Empire yet. So Greece was kind of the end of this. And one of the reasons that they say this... Well, I should correct the, the thing about Nebuchadnezzar. It was the Ashurbanipals yeah. that were the Antiglis-Pelesers who were the Assyrians. Yeah. But, which, yeah. is, okay. which is wild, because I mean, you're right the, about the, the, yeah, the history of the kings, king of kings. What's fascinating about this is you get so much of the, the language of kind of the Babylonian, Assyrian, uh, Persian empires because of the exile, and then you get the Greek language after the Greeks take over, Israel kind of has this engagement with these cultures. So the title King of Kings, which we give to Jesus, mm. which we just celebrated, Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. He is the King of all kings. He's, uh, that title was Assyrian, and then the Babylonians said, yeah, we're going to keep doing that. And then the Persians ah. said, yeah, we're going to keep doing that. So Cyrus, when he, Cyrus the, the Persian, Cyrus the Great, when he comes in, he claims the title King of Kings. And it's when uh, they've kind of taken the empire because they have a kind of a um, subjugated king or like a appointed kings or rulers underneath the King of Kings. And so within the empires, you'd have the king, the King of Kings. And then in the different territories you'd have, or the different major cities, you'd have a king ruling. Yeah. And so you had the King of Kings who ruled with these other local kings. Yeah, like you had King Herod. Mm-hmm. But he was, they were something of a vassal state of Rome. Yep. So anyway, that's an aside. I love also that David, or in Daniel, there's a bunch of this um, language of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven uh, that will come. What can I say about your dream? Oh, please. At the end of the dream, after he's interpreted it, yeah. uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, truly your God is the God of gods and the king of kings. Yes. Right? So he does cede the title. Mm-hmm. And he interprets uh, the the stone that comes in and smashes this idol, this statue. It's it's smashing the four kingdoms before, and it's smashing the idol. It's in the image of an idol, so it's smashing the religious uh, idolatry worship. And then this stone grows into this mountain, and it is this king represents this kingdom. Daniel interprets a kingdom that will last forever. Yeah. And so you've got the king or the stone that smashes. And it, it hearkens you to Matthew 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is it Isaiah 18? Oh, is what they're know. quoting. Um, or Psalm, Psalm 118? I can't remember. But Matthew 21. What's Matthew 21? What are you talking about? <laughs> Jesus the, as the, the corner, rock? The cornerstone. Peter, is Peter as the rock? Nope. The cornerstone. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. The stone that the builders rejected. Yeah, that's the the cornerstone. Mm -hmm. And then the very next line after that in Matthew is, and those who stumble over it will, uh, 
will crumble and those who it falls upon will be crushed. Uh, yeah. And so you get this parallel to the stone that crushes and destroys and obliterates into dust um, the, the kingdoms before yeah. and the idolatry before. And so Jesus, who is this cornerstone that, that was rejected but becomes the cornerstone, uh, crushes in this sense, oh, yeah. which is kind of crazy. All the kingdoms before and establishes the kingdom of God. Yeah. So um, there's so much I love. I love this story. I want to get back to Daniel a little bit before we get, get going farther. But yeah. the, the history um, element of the dating when this book was written, Daniel has the cycle of prophecies through chapter one through seven, um, or kind of miracles and, and prophecies or interpretations of things and visions. So there's another vision he has, which is the animals. And I'm not as familiar with this one, but there's, there's four different types of like animal beasts that don't look, or they're kind of strange. And he interprets these, or is it the angel Gabriel that interprets for him? I think, yeah, the angel is telling Daniel. And it, again... But these, Daniel is vision, has, having, having this vision, vision or dream, yeah. And so the four animals are um, the representative of these four kingdoms as well. And so the third kingdom uh, is this cheetah, this lion, or cheetah type thing with four wings that rushes in. Yeah. And that one is kind of tied to the Greeks uh, because you have this rapid conquest of Alexander oh, yeah. the Great, but then you have the four wings, which is the separation of his kingdom after the fact. Oh, yeah. Here you go. The Diadochoi. Yeah. The four kings that are, well, let's see if we can remember them. Um, There's one for Greece. Ptolemy is Ptolemy in for Egypt. Egypt. There's the Seleucids in uh, out of Antioch, Syria. Yeah. And... Oh, I don't know what the last one would be. But it's the Seleucids who become the problem, mm -hmm. the Syrian Greek kings. That are over Israel. Yeah. And this fast forwards to uh, the Maccabean time. Exactly. Yeah. And so the the traditional dating or history of these um, of this prophecy of the, the four kingdoms and the fourth kingdom being Rome was understood by uh, Origen, took that as the... the case and then most of the church fathers that talked about it took that as the case jerome when he is doing his biblical work and translating scriptures into latin in his commentary on this talks about how those are the four kingdoms oh. josephus the historian jewish historian in the first century a.d talks about how daniel was a true historical figure and the four kingdoms were to yeah rome. he calls him one of the greatest prophets <laughs> And so, and then even the Maccabees, the Ma Maccabean books kind of are steeped with Daniel image, Daniel expectation, understanding of, of um, these kind of prophecies. And then Jesus himself, in Matthew specifically, uh, quotes Daniel quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and the counterpoint to this, though, I thought was interesting was it seems like a lot of scholars don't want to accept foresight prophecy as a reality. Hmm. And so one of the big things is he had such the, the symbolism in these, in these visions and the, these interpretations were so exact, so exact with the, hmm. the type of the kingdom, what would happen. Apparently there's kind of an apocryphal story of after Alexander had conquered one of the, 
wise men in the in the area, I think one of the Israelites showed him this prophecy of Daniel. And he says, "Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's me." Oh. <laughs> so I don't know if that's I never uh, heard that story, I don't know if that's apocryphal yeah. or not, but um there's there's an idea that Alexander received like, "Oh yeah, I'm that one. I'm the third. <laughs> okay, so yeah, with the four kingdoms, this chapters 10 through 12 lay out a history. This is after kind of the symbolic stuff. Lays out a history that's very detailed about the wars that um, take place heading up into the years 165 to 167. That is mm-hmm. the Maccabean Revolution. Yeah. And um, so at that point, Rome, Roman Empire has not really spread the way that it will soon after. Mm-hmm. And um, so the historical debate um, from, yeah, the skeptics about seeing the future is to say that the symbolic language is prophecia ex eventu. That is, that it's... Prophecy after the event. Yeah, it's like saying, well, we knew this all along and that Mm -hmm. God had given the the sort of awareness and consciousness of what was going to happen and that apocalyptic kind of sees into heaven where history is happening and has happened and all these things. And um, But the historians would say that the four kings would be leading up to the Greek Seleucid kingdom, which is the Syrian rulers who are um, the problem for uh, Israel, insisting on building gymnasiums in Jerusalem and mm-hmm. the surrounding area that the Maccabees are fighting against. And so it's, the de- it's kind of the details of the history that are played out and that end right at that time. Yeah. Um, if you're yeah if you're reading the history that way yep and so then it does draw this kind of skepticism about well prophets are, are prophets meant to see the future or is prophecy more about um god speaking into a present the and now. with a kind of confidence through god for the people that the future belongs to god mm-hmm. rather than necessarily saying okay yeah. This is the; these are the events that are going to take place. Although it it, it reads that way, mm-hmm. you know, but it could be just a genre. Yeah, because the idea would be, wow, this is this history is pretty exact. Yeah, uh, but you don't really have much past um, at this. Well, point. and you can just follow it. You can mm-hmm. just follow the, the chronology as the story plays out, compared with the you know the history that we know yeah. up until that point to Antiochus the fourth. But I don't know that. I don't know if uh, that's right. Um, the Seleucid king, and I don't know if Origen would have been unaware of that. I don't think Jerome. he would have, and I don't That's think Josephus would have either. And the thing that was most compelling for me when I was reading on this that argues for more true prophecy is the within Daniel, there's uh, the prophecy of the, the prince who will come, uh, the Messiah yeah, prince the that will come. One, yeah. And then after a time, he will be cut off. And then after he is cut off, the temple will be destroyed. And yeah. The temple will be laid waste. And so if Daniel's writing this ex eventus after the fact, or whoever's writing Daniel as Daniel, uh, if they write everything else is so exact, but then there's a claim of the temple, Jerusalem being destroyed and the temple being laid waste. But that hasn't happened yet. Right. That doesn't happen until after Christ when Rome comes in and destroys the temple, right. the second temple. So, yeah, I mean, the the secular historians 
speculate about, well, what did they intend for this to mean? And the, the kind of cheap go around is to just say, well, this piece hasn't been settled <laughs> by D- D- Daniel's time, but he's kind of got a scheme of how these things work. So maybe he sees the Maccabean revolt on the horizon and, and sees like, them this as... This is how they're going to take care of it, because that's how Babylon took care of it. Yeah. And, you know, the the temple is in um, under constant threat. But I still think, uh, you know, uh, you if you go with that, you can still say, I suppose, you could say, well, the Christians reinterpreted this. And, well, even all the Jews of his time, because Josephus is not a Christian. Yeah. But... Um, I do find it pretty intriguing on that, that kind of mysterious question unanswered. That's the only one that that remains. It's like Mm -hmm. that anointed figure who comes along. Because even in the time, the Maccabees were kind of, you know, were these guys recognized Mm -hmm. socially as great heroes or were they just rebels and dangerous and controversial and if they were going to be the anointed figure if it was judas maccabeus that was going to be the the fulfillment of the prophecy of this anointed one who would come up and then be cut off well we forget that in that other prophecy the stone that comes and crushes and builds a kingdom that will last forever the maccabean kingdom did not last very long no it didn't (laughs) it lasted about 100 years yeah and then it got kind of drowned out in so, history, yeah. so even there, it's there's a hard parallel to make for me of like, oh yeah, that's who they meant. Um, even if they were, it, it would just show that uh, they're they're projecting something at the end of this Daniel arc that they're hoping would come but had didn't come. Yeah. Whereas if you read it through the interpretation, kind of the classical interpretation, where Rome is the fourth kingdom, and Christ comes in, and he shatters everything within. 300 years after Christ's crucifixion, Rome is Catholic. The yeah. world becomes Catholic. And, and I would say this, too, that to say to say that this has to be Maccabean or in, during that time and not looking forward for the next, what, um, 150 years later, that it's ignoring reading that within the whole Jewish scriptural tradition— that an anointed figure is not something that just shows up in Daniel 9. Mm-hmm. It's um, a figure that is, you know, the son of David, the future son of David. Um, the anointed of God is referred to in, in Isaiah and these other places where that, that stirred up messianic expectations. It goes beyond mm-hmm. just this one single reference in Daniel. So um, Daniel in some way is is saying God has promised this down the line and um, it's going to happen with this particular figure, which was fairly unique because Messianism of the of the time of the Maccabees was was broad. There was lots of different theories about what, you know, a Messiah could be or if that even meant a singular figure. But mm-hmm. Daniel's taking a position on that and um, predicting that. I predict, yeah, predicting, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, I, or can, I can go with that. Saw, I mean. Yeah, and seeing it, right. And what's amazing, the story of Nebuchadnezzar to proclaim, oh, the God of, of Daniel is the God of gods and the King of kings. He sees, uh, like, wow, this is, something happened. You You interpreted this in a way that my guys couldn't. But that then happens again with the really intriguing character of Darius the Mede, uh, who's kind of historically 
a question mark because there's no real secondary evidence of who this Darius the Mede might be. Mm -hmm. Because after the Babylonian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, who were kind of culturally and uh, historically really close, almost like cousins, Mm -hmm. the Medes kind of get to Babylon first, (laughs) and they they take a lot of um, territory, but they're kind of working. And then eventually Cyrus the Great, who's the great conqueror, the one who ends up sending Israel and all the other dispossessed people back to their, their homelands to build their build up their temples and their religious places of worship, um, kind of comes and rules the as the kind of crown the the peak of this this empire. Yeah. And then you have this weird Darius uh the Persian, Darius the Great, I think is four rulers after Cyrus the Great, and he's kind of this uh, great um he was more of like a, an efficient kind of CEO mm. type emperor, king of kings at the time. Um, but when you've under Darius the Mede, uh, again, Daniel is, this is where the Daniel in the lion's den story comes from. Yeah. And the, the and other, then which one is the one with the writing on the wall? That was today. So yeah, that's, that's uh, Bel- Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Yeah. So that, and you're seeing what you see in this chronology is Daniel who was taken in the exile from Israel as one of the, the young, bright students that was going to be brought into the court to be trained up. Um, that's the first story we read on, I believe, Monday, where he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken to be trained up to be kind of wise men in the court of the king because uh, when the Babylonians would conquer, they would take kind of the best of the cultures, yeah. bring them back to the center of their culture, and then have their wisdom uh, infused with the culture of Babylon and kind of grow from their uh their their pool of wisdom yeah and knowledge. like assimilate yeah and so then they were being told uh, educated in the court uh but they were also receiving the food and they said we can't eat this food mm-hmm. and the the guy that's kind of overseeing them says if if i don't give you guys this food pork particularly yeah uh fun story we were at mass with my aunt and uh this was easter or uh, thanksgiving week and she she heard orc, not pork. <laughs> and she's like trying not to laugh wow. during mass. She's like, you sh- we shall not eat orc. <laughs> <laughs> the good Lord of the Rings fans. <laughs> and then we well, were thinking of be. like the, uh, and then I couldn't help but think of like the orc going like, oh, man flesh. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, um, yeah. Sorry, so that's, that's Tolkien thinking on the <laughs> pigs. <laughs> um, but they said, no, if you just feed us vegetables after a week, see if we are not better off than the others. And she's like, okay, I'll give you a week. And then they were healthier and stronger and, and ready to go. So they they served God first. Um, then you have Nebuch- the Nebuchadnezzar story with the interpretation of the dream. After that, Darius the Mede, so kind of the beginning of the Mede Persian Empire. Uh, the other members, wise men in the court, don't like or are jealous of Daniel and kind of the oh, acclaim yeah. and the power he's getting. So they tell Darius to enact this law that says uh, you can only uh, pray to the god of Persia or something like that. I think it's his own statue. Or, bow down to, to him. Bow yeah, down to him. Bow down to my own statue. And so he's like, sure, sounds good. I like, uh, I'm the king of kings, so bow down to me. That's all right. And one of the things about the, the decrees of the kings of kings is once they're decreed, they can't be taken back. That's right. He and that's the, it, yeah. that's the story of, um, is that Esther? Yeah. Uh, as well. Yeah, 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 right. And um, so anyway, the Dari- uh, Daniel goes and he's not going to bow down to, and this is the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well, getting thrown into the thrown furnace. Thrown into the furnace, yeah. 
Uh, and then Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den um, because he was seen praying to his God of Israel. That's right. And then he's in the lion's den. They send the angel. The angel calms the lion, uh, protects Daniel. Daniel comes out. The next day, the king runs to see if he's okay because he didn't really want to. He's yeah. like, oh, I've made a terrible decision, but I can't re- redact my law. Daniel's alive. So then the king says, well, that's proof that he's actually fine. Again, proclaims the God of the Israelites is the king of the universe. That's it. God of gods. Um, and then he throws all the, the people who kind of like conspired against Daniel in the lion's den and they get devoured. Yeah. And then you fast forward to uh, this character, Belshazzar, which is his, he's historically uh, fascinating. Um, I think I have these names right, but his father was Nabonidus. Who is, is he the cripple king or the leper king? I can't remember if he was a leper king or not, but Nabonidus was just kind of like a bad king. Um, his mom was very into the the moon god cult. Oh. And so not the principal god of kind of Assyria, Babylon, Persia uh, mm. religious practice. And so he was kind of um, this uh, Nabonidus character uh, was kind of ruling and he says, I think this, he was a son of at least lineage to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and actually, I think I just flipped these around. I think Nabonidus Belshazzar is first, and then Darius the Mede comes after them. Okay. Because this, we're still in the Babylonian arc here. So Belshazzar is called the king, um, the, the king of Babylon at the time. And for the longest time, historians were like, there's no king Belshazzar in any of the Babylonian archaeology we the have. Record? Oh. But then they found the Nabonidus cylinder. And these cylinders are like these uh, clay cylinders that would be engraved with stories. And so you could ink them up and then roll them out. Yeah. And it would, you could or you roll them it, on the clay. Or roll them in the clay, that's yeah. right. And it would, it would um, the, uh, the lettering would then, be standing yeah, it's out. ingenious it's like the first printing press yeah so you could do it over and over mm-hmm. and over with the same cylinder so in 18 in the 1850s they found this nabonidus cylinder mm. and the nabonidus cylinder talks about his son belshazzar who was left the stewardship effectively of the kingdom mm. when he went off kind of with his mom to do this moon cult worship stuff ah. <laughs> and there was a lot of um a lot of dissatisfaction with his ruling, Nabonidus. Yeah. And he wasn't really a good king. And so then Belshazzar is kind of like governing and ruling. And he gets this uh, image while they're celebrating and partying. And they bring out the um, the yeah, the vessels, the vessels and the gold from the temple. And they're mm-hmm. basically drinking out of the sacred vessels from the temple of Jerusalem. And this hand appears and writes, Mene, Mene, Telik, Uparshin, I think. Yeah. And many tekel Paris is many tekel Paris. Yeah, yeah. How it shows up in the lectionary today. Yeah, and so then they call in Daniel to interpret it, and he interprets it as you have been, uh, you have been found wanting, measured, found wanting, oh, yeah, measured, found wanting, um, and and your uh, your kingdom will be given over to the Persians. Yeah, and then almost immediately after this, um, like pretty quick historically, is when this Darius the Mede character comes in and it's the Medes and the Persians who conquer Babylon. And historically, one of the the interesting things with King Cyrus the Great in what's called the Cyrus Cylinder 
is he's posturing himself in this cylinder that's obviously being passed around uh, the territories yeah. as like the true Super king. Super cool. British Museum. Yeah. The true king uh, chosen by God to reinstate proper worship because the Babylonians see Nabonidus like not praise, praying well having this kind of weird moon cult thing and not being a good leader. And Cyrus kind of plays on that. He's like, I'll be the one. I'll come back in. We'll, <laughs> we'll get yeah. everything back in order. And Cyrus, effectively, there's like one, or a big battle outside of Babylon. But once they, they win that, he basically just walks into Babylon with open gates and mm. becomes the king of kings and the Persian Empire takes off. Yeah. So, Huge. It'll go to battle with the Greeks. So you've got Daniel serving the Babylonian king, and then serving uh, his successor, Belshazzar, at the end of the Babylonian Empire. And then the Medes and the Persians come in. And Daniel's been there the whole time, mm. which is just super cool, I think, historically. so Yeah, and it's fun to see that um, history, history historians make very strong judgments about what is historical and what's not historical in the literature based on archaeology mm-hmm. that's very incomplete. Yeah, I mean, we have traces, little pieces that we stir up from mm-hmm. the dust. And um, it is a good kind of cautionary tale to assume too much yeah. uh, from the history that we know from artifacts, <laughs> right? There's a, a wonderful quippy quote from uh, G.K. Chesterton talking about what what people, the uh, archaeologists of 2,000 years from now will discover, like, teenage graffiti (laughs) (laughs) at like a cave and what they will interpret. Yeah. And that's the whole of society. They will make, they will make these amazing uh, broad statements of the culture of the 1900s (laughs) based on, on this like rock scratching. (laughs) It's true, man. That's Um, how it works. But the, um, so 1854 up to that point, the historicity of the book of Daniel was really questioned by Mm. contemporary scholars because we don't know this Belshazzar guy. There was never a Belshazzar king. But then we find the scroll, yeah, 1854, and says, so this Darius the Mede is kind of the last historical figure. We're not quite sure how to situate him, mm. who he is. We don't have a corroborating archaeological discovery of who he might be. There's a lot of uh, ideas around it. But, okay. Um, so that's a, enough of the historical nerding that's out. That's cool, man. <laughs> I love it. I love history. Um, the ancient Near East. I thought of another piece I should add to the the whole oh please that's why i've got you on matrix and that is um but this is kind of a digression but um so the the schema the historical schema goes through um these you know final chapters of daniel but then in chapter 12 you get to the end and instead of saying okay um this has been proven in our time you know like daniel say mm-hmm. you know hey look it's all over and i was right all along and god has you know fulfilled all these things there is just like a punting into the distant future in Daniel 12, where he says, um, at that distant time, the, um, the saints will shine like the stars in the heavens, and wisdom will be known on earth. And then at the very end, the last lines of Daniel have, um, have Daniel asking, well, when is this to be? And the angel said, it's not for you to know. And it ends like da 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 <laughs> to be continued. Yeah. So, so it wasn't like immediately at the time mm-hmm. Daniel was saying, "Okay, this is happening." You it's got that it, guy. and it's going to be. It's like, oh, I don't even know. Yeah. What was the seventy weeks of years? Oh boy. 
Oh boy, that's got various interpretations. Um, Just broadly speaking, we don't have to get into any of the particulars, but well, um, it was. I don't. I think it was like seventy weeks of years was thought to be between the Babylonian exile and the return mm-hmm. of uh, of the Jews from Cyrus's time, and then it was extended somehow to. Um, Oh, 70, like what, se- so I, 70 years, 70 weeks. I think the 70 weeks was the original, like. Somehow it moved from yeah. like 50 years to 490 <laughs> years or something like that. So I think my understanding of this, correct me if I'm wrong or if this rings a bell for you, but the um, Daniel, when he's looking at this, uh, the scripture says Daniel perceived in the texts, re- perceived in the sacred writings. Um, it's basically the, the prophets, the the writings of, of Israel, of the Hebrew tradition, he, he perceived. So he's studying. I think scriptures. it's specifically in Jeremiah. Okay. And then he's reinterpreting. So he's perceiving in Jeremiah this time of exile to return. But what he perceives. And that's speaking specifically of, of the year, what is it, 583, 538 to the return in, oh my goodness. Now I'm <laughs> no, we're not, too we're not late. Prepped. Um, but the return from, uh, yeah. from the exile back to Jerusalem. About and, 50 years in, in the sixth century BC. And, but what Daniel interprets is this return is contingent on uh, the, the full fulfillment of this prophecy is contingent on the repentance, mm. the repentance of Israel. Cause the whole Babylonian exile is God's punishment to teach, to draw his people back to worship, to, to praise and desire of him. Mm. And so there's a conditional element to the prophecy, which Daniel uh, kind of interprets as he reads it. And then he realizes the people haven't repented yeah. and haven't turned back. So one of the most compelling things that Daniel does in the story arc is he, he kind of takes the position as head of Israel, kind of as Moses did in front of God, yeah. praying for mercy, praying for uh, kind of a staying of the hand, interceding on behalf of the whole people. Daniel then turns and prays, interceding on behalf of all of Israel, making that repentance. Yeah, and that's when the prayer, uh, you know, before your prayer has begun, God had heard it and sent his answer type of stuff that happens in Daniel. And so he interprets this need for repentance, and then he kind of stands as intercessor in place as kind of head over Israel doing this. Yeah. But there's kind of a tradition of the longer Israel waited to kind of learn their lesson, the more the punishment would grow and it kind of compound. And we see that through the Exodus arc. We see that uh, in some other places. And so I think that's that was the interpretation I read of how it went from the initial like yeah. fifty years to the four fifty. And he's saying, you know, that although we had thought that our exile would have been ended, it has continued into our time and long yeah. after. And so you've got this um, kind of strange interpretation: the people, the Israelites. Uh, the, the Jewish people around the Roman Empire when Christ comes, some of the interpretations of these weeks situate kind of that time. 
Mm. So you've got this milieu in the in the Jewish people when Christ comes. There's an idea of we're in the fourth kingdom mm. of this prophecy, and we're within this window, you know, kind of with the the limits. Um, before or after, we're in this window of when this prophecy is supposed to kind of come into effect. Mm. And this prince is supposed to arise, uh, and and then he'll be cut off after some time, and then the temple's going to be destroyed. So there's all of this kind of messianic expectation, as well as kind of an apprehension of these prophecies, and the temple is still at risk, and now it's the Romans. And all of that is sitting there when Christ comes. Yeah. And some of the Dead Sea Scrolls stuff points to that kind of timeline. And so there was, the Qumran community is very pregnant with um, messianic expectation and um, kind of Jewish interpretation. And a lot of that comes from this extended timeline of, uh, of Daniel and this same motif of our exile has not ended, mm-hmm. but the coming of the Messiah will put an end to our exile and... Um, to our um, infidelity in some ways, but um, the kind of problems that are exacerbating the, um, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, one last theory on the, the weeks. There's a really interesting um, argument I read, and you can see it in um, Pablo Gadanz has a commentary on Luke's gospel in the... Um, Catholic commentary on sacred scripture series. Okay. And it was, it's very novel for me to see this. I hadn't, um, but he tries to line up the, um, the weeks with, um, the story of the incarnation in Luke's gospel. So Mm -hmm. there's details about, um, in this month, I think it was in the sixth month, Mary goes to visit, Elizabeth, and then you can calculate, you know, when she conceived Jesus, and then the the timeline from um, from Elizabeth's pregnancy up into I think he ends it with um, after the purification with Simeon in the temple mm-hmm. as this sort of four hundred ninetieth day or something somehow <laughs> this um, weeks of years kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, fast forward to New Testament. Then Jesus, multiple times in the temple, is talking about how this temple will be destroyed. Yeah. And it's kind of this twofold meaning of him and the temple itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's the Luke, um, is it Luke 19 or 21? Um, when he's talking about uh, these will be the signs. Yeah. Um, and then the temple will be destroyed. Yep. So Jesus himself is saying, like, yeah, this is coming. This thing's coming. Um yeah, Luke 21. But I also want to jump to Paul. If you're, you're, Father Brian's our resident St. Paul. Yeah, he's the Pauline expert. guy. But I was I'm, reading. I'm not an absolute. So, <laughs> but your point about, about Jesus' prediction is that he is a prophetic prophet in the same way that he sees the future, or are you just saying he's uh, attentive to the timeline and is associating himself with the fall of the temple? I think he's associating himself. I think he knows it's coming. Yeah, I, I think he's the logos that <laughs> from the alpha, the alpha and the omega, as he proclaims in the book of Revelation. Um, so I think he knows what's coming. He knows because he's the one who's inspired the prophets. Uh-huh. And he's inspired Daniel, and he's he's drawing. I think 
particular allusions to Daniel in this moment to highlight, I am the prince who came. Mm-hmm. I am the I am the rejected stone that will become the cornerstone that will grow into this everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And you get all this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. The kingdom of heaven is here. Luke and Paul uh, talk about the kingdom of heaven a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I think that Jesus is situating himself as like, he, he's, it's this subtly coded, it's happening, guys. It's yeah. happening. And they're waiting and expecting, mm-hmm. and he's, yeah, signaling. I'm and he, here and he's educating them. Um, so when this podcast comes out, if you're listening week by week, uh, this will be the reading from last Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent this year. Um, second reading is from First Corinthians. Okay. And I was really compelled by just reading this little line. It says that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ or the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. What word do you think that is? Revelation. Apocalypse. Apocalypsin. Yeah. What does the word apocalypse mean? What, what does the word apocalypse trigger in our thought now first? It means wars <laughs> and disaster and the end the of the world. End, and somebody will take in and another, another won't be taken. And are you going to be one of the left behind? Oh, yeah. Mark of the beast. Yeah. So that's a lot of what apocalypse stuff. triggers in people's mind. The apocalypse, the end time. What's the word apocalypse mean? It means um, the unveiling. The unveiling, the uncovering. Yeah. So that's Re- what revelation is the yep. un, that veiling out or like taking away. And so the, I guess the last point that I'm going to offer you and then I want you to comment on is this unveiling, this apocalypsis that Daniel, we talk about as an apocalyptic author. He's doing this unveiling of God's plan, God's work, what's happening. And Daniel, we see now, kind of with hindsight, is talking about the immediate case of Israel in exile and going back to Jerusalem, leading up to the Messiah, but then kind of has some stuff about the angels, the saints will be shining like the stars in heaven, Mm -hmm. that looks to also be pointing to what this kingdom of heaven will be. So it's kind of the, the coming of the Messiah and then the second coming of Christ at the mm, end yeah, uh, in Daniel already. yeah. And then Jesus shows up, and he hearkens back. And he says, yeah, this Daniel stuff, it's happening. And also, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is now. And then he says, I must go to the Father. The kingdom of heaven is, is here. It is growing. And the image that I have is the St. Paul talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is in you. The kingdom of heaven is constantly growing in St. Paul's mm. theology. And so what I see, I think back to Daniel, this stone which comes in and crushes and destroys everything, then begins to grow until it's like a mountain. Yeah. And so I think we're in that phase. We're still in the mountain growing, mm. waiting for the second coming. And so then we have... Yeah, because the- Paul's not talking about Jesus has already come. Yep. That revelation is already made. So waiting for the revelation, the apocalypse, which John writes in the apocalypse, we call the book of Revelation, is this unfolding, this unveiling of all of the cosmic history. Mm-hmm. From creation, Christ was the Alpha and the Omega. All he has done, this cosmic liturgy, this cosmic uh, war against Satan, the defeat, the, the devil that wants to devour the Son of Man. Uh, he's taken up into heaven. 
all of this stuff that is showing kind of like the the immediacy of all of this to God's action, but then historically stretched out in mm. our, our understanding of it. And we are waiting the full revelation, the full apocalypsis of that. And so that's what I offer now. We're a week into Advent. We're oh, anticipating. Yeah. We're waiting. This is all about the coming of Christ. Yes, the, the, the remembrance of the nativity, the first coming, but looking towards that complete revelation of St. Paul is talking about the apocalypsis, the revelation, the un- unveiling of Christ when you come. Yeah. That's my connection. I love it. And it talks about on my holy mountain. Um, there's kind of mountain imagery at the restoration of the garden at the end of uh, the book of Revelation. And Jesus saying, behold, I make all things new. And it's kind of like I'm making all things new. Um, so I love your image of um, the growth of the mound, the growth of the mountain, because there is a sense of like, well, what's the deal with Jesus? Why is God waiting so long to come back? And there's various indications in the scripture of like what this means. But I think most compelling or most obvious is that the kingdom is spreading and that this is work that God, that Jesus began and then is uh, playing out in human history and um, is is growing. Now, how to interpret the kingdom of God is like, <laughs> pretty uh, <laughs> a big question in terms of is that the church yes is it um the world more generally speaking the kingdom of god is wherever god is present or known or um is in charge somehow and um so then yeah i mean there's there's debate and controversy over whether or not is there some sort of um inevitability built into that with that stone, you know, destroying all the kingdoms of the world and God in revelation, destroying all the evils of the world and this world kind of growing into that holy mountain. Um, it's certainly happening, but like, what's the, you know, is it, is it an inevitable thing because Christ has conquered and, we don't know. There's no yeah. like absolute <laughs> answer to that. We just know that we're in cooperating in the coming of the kingdom. Um, the the four kingdoms was kind of a pretty historical prophecy, but the the way the vision's described it's described as an idol that would have been uh, used by the, the, the other pagan cults around um, around Israel at the time. These pagan idols would be made out of gold, out of silver, mm-hmm. out of bronze, out of iron. Um, or even out of clay, wood. And I think, you know, there's all the, the prophets talk about, oh, look at your dead gods, your dead idols, you know. That's right. And so the the image itself has both the nation image as well as the image of idolatry, the mm. image of worshiping something that's not the true God, and that's being destroyed, that's being smashed. And so the kingdoms are destroyed, but also the idolatry. And there's something about the way Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego offered worship to God. Um, they no longer have the temple in Jerusalem. Babylon destroyed it. The first temple is gone. The temple that Solomon built, destroyed by the Babylonians. So they no longer have temple worship. They no longer have the daily sacrifice um, rising to God. So what do they do? Their liturgical wor- uh, offering, their, their sacrifice, their worship, is themselves. Mm. They're ready to lay their life down. They're ready to die for the God of heaven. Mm. And so Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are ready to, you know what? 
rather have you kill us than eat the, uh, you know, the unlawful meat. Then they're rewarded by that, but they're, they're readiness to die. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down to the statue. They get thrown into the furnace. And uh, one like the son of man, or son of, is it son of God or son of man? One like um, I think it's one like a man. son of man. Okay, mm-hmm. is standing in there with them, and they're not burning, and they're uh, so. There's this fire image that um, kind of harkens to the Holy Spirit, even mm-hmm. that that they're, they're, there's this immolation of them, the worship of giving them their life over, but then being uh, being kind of burned in love rather than the fire, mm. and they come out and they're like, wow, they're shining, and this is this is clearly their God's the true God. Daniel with the lion's den is ready to lay his life down uh, rather than commit idolatry. Mm. So it's all idolatry or not. And then Christ comes and everybody's waiting for this messianic king who's going to destroy the nations and establish Israel as the kingdom forever. And he says, you're missing the point. The kingdom of heaven is in you. This is St. Paul again. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, I will conquer sin and death in you. Mm. I will teach you true worship to lay your life down for another, to love as God loves, to love as the Trinitarian love. Um, do this in remembrance of me, the, mm. the Last Supper. Uh, take take and eat this, my body, being given up for you. He's offering, he's holding in his hand what is already on the cross. Mm. Uh, this is what Christ is saying is true worship. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a type, a prefigurement of that. Mm. Uh, when there's no temple worship and so i think there's even a tie in there it's like a spiritualizing of the whole um rather than well i mean i think there is something like a historical claim but mm-hmm. like you're saying there's something of um just internally conversion um from the the idolatry of um worshiping putting our putting worth in the the wrong things and, and so, i don't know if does, does the mountain come from all of those things crashing and piling up. Oh, I wonder all like the, the dust. mound of idols? <laughs> yeah. I like that. Because um, I think in the end, well, it looks like Christendom is dying. We're shrinking. Our churches are shrinking. How can we say that the mountain is growing? Mm. And I'm like, well, Israel thought they had it, and then they committed idolatry, and then they were cast off into exile, and then they were brought back. So just because... Christ has come and we have the fullness of truth and revelation doesn't mean that we haven't committed idolatry and grievous sin. Mm. And there might be a time of purification and regrowth because the kingdom of heaven is rooting out sin and idolatry. And if that is kind of a very difficult time we're living in now, the kingdom of heaven is still growing as idolatries are killed in each Christian in their life. Yeah. And the, the movement of, well, Christendom, if, you, if that's a term we're going to use, um, has ebbed and flowed throughout mm-hmm. history. I mean, it's not like a, just a steady, constant growth. It's like, yeah. you know, there's that cliche of the um, the Irish monks saved Europe, you know, yeah. saved Christianity in Europe, because it had kind of grown cold and stale and mm-hmm. gone and um, needed to be reinvigorated and brought back. And That's right. I don't think, if you're trying to track the growth of, Christianity and Christ, according to statistics about numbers of how many people are Christians or baptized or something like that, then there's something of missing the point. And not only missing the point of, 
you know, where is Jesus and what is, where's is the kingdom, but also how does God's providence guide these things and lead these things and conquer, conquer, yeah. you know, the idols of the world and of our lives and of, um, you know, the pretenses of the kings of this world and powers of this world. It you... takes a long time, though. I mean, <laughs> there's times when I'm like, hey, Jesus, let's get you, on you, it. You're hey, coming back. Man, get... <laughs> this is pretty messy. People are suffering. But I take, I take heart in reading the history of Israel that God, in his providence, used Nebuchadnezzar, mm-hmm. who's like objectively not a great guy, <laughs> kind of a tyrant, does some pretty terrible things. Um, and they use Cyrus yeah. to send him back, you know. And in Isaiah, um, God says, Cyrus is my anointed one. Yeah. You know, I have, I have appointed this one. So, and this guy was so arrogant and he's, you know, <laughs> he thinks he's the king of kings, but he's got a king over him. Exactly. And so I think um, looking at today, looking at what we have, using our hindsight and interpreting the past well is important because uh, I, this is what I preached on on, on Tuesday with, uh, at the seminary, but I think looking back and seeing what God has done mm. and seeing how God worked through salvation history, through foreign pagan kings, uh, it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't always uh, within Israel that somebody was raised up, like the judges or Moses, or you've got Joshua as the leader, and the judges and the kings afterwards. You get a lot of bad kings coming out of Israel. Mm. And they use Cyrus, like Babylon, to kind of crush them and humble them, and then Cyrus to send them back and support the building of the second temple. Um, God's providence is something way bigger than we know. And I think we can get really caught up in how could this be happening? How could that person be in charge of this? How could this person be here? How would God let this happen? But then you zoom out, you know, 500 years and who knows what we're going to say, you know, 200 years from now about this time we're living in and like, Oh, that's what God was doing. Yeah. And so then what I offer is the hindsight or not the hindsight, but the foresight 2020 Daniel. He said, this is what's coming. This is what's happening. Mm -hmm. This is the unveiling to, to have faith in what Christ has said will happen and then rest in that as a Christian. And then we're not as like anxious and, and, frustratable yeah <laughs> with well what's going on today well so. and i think um i'm always trying to find a kind of apologetic for biblical theology and you have these two sort of i don't know if it's like i don't vertical and horizontal or two different tracks of theology where dogmatic theology answers all these questions about the what's of god and morality and um, it tries to study kind of everything in a static mode, like presently, how can we identify everything and define everything and um, fit it all into um, a kind of coherent picture of reality, of like theological reality. But then it doesn't really have this story. It doesn't have this story. And so it lacks something of this theology of hope where you can say, well, uh, we know who God is. We know who we are. But... Um, what can we expect? And if you can't see the future, then you're stuck with anxiety. But if you know that the future is Christ, then the Christian lives in hope. And that comes from um, this long, long story that we've seen ups and downs and changes and twists. And we see God's sovereignty over the whole thing. That, well, like when you say, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the direction 
toward which human history is moving and that inspire should inspire in us uh, a great deal of hope not just a hope for my life and the salvation of my soul or something like that but the hope for future hope for the future of the church hope for the future of um the christians that we love and then for the human history hope for the saints in numerous uh the numerous crowd of saints in, yeah, in yeah. the book of revelation shining like stars beautiful so thank you father mike uh for letting me run down many rabbits that's holes. great man <laughs> i'm sorry it's so it's so late i can um not keep up with all yeah. the f- facts and figures no it's, it's tough and that's not how my mind swimming works, around so. in my head um i appreciate it the guys at seminary uh i preached i think i went about 12 minutes preaching on this which is a long homily for is one it, for yeah. me and is a long homily for the seminary so of course i got i got some feedback from some guys like yeah it's pretty good it's pretty long it's pretty long it's pretty yeah, good but yeah. it's pretty long <laughs> Yeah, like, so, uh, get used to that. <laughs> uh, we we just talked about Daniel for an hour. So, guys, it could have been way worse for you than, yeah. <laughs> than the 12 Dude, minutes go, you got. Let's go 12 hours, <laughs> 40 weeks of hours. <laughs> so, um, no, thank you. I love this. I love picking your brain and hearing your interpretations as well. And uh, especially I liked, I didn't have much of the um, kind of the contemporary arguments for the, the dating mm-hmm. of Daniel at a, at a later time. Uh, yeah. So I appreciate you being able to illuminate that for me a little more. Yeah, and it's a fascinating question of kind of how does God's providence work. I'm in sort of torn between whether or not we have to see um, future predictions as the nature of what we would call biblical prophecy. And um, it does. it's not always that, but it does seem like that's an important um, perspective and the idea that um, to know a true prophet is to know whether or not their prophecy came true is kind of implies this sort of future vision now i don't know how that works now like are there a lot of future <laughs> visionaries right now yeah, what's that, happening because we don't have know? new canons of scripture being written but we do have spiritual writers writing yeah so what's going on but you you are my visionary for the day <laughs> um thank you yeah that's great you take me into a world that i love I would say uh, for all those listeners who have stayed with us for uh, this hour, thank you. I hope my hope with this was to inspire you to go deeper into what's going on in the scriptures yeah. with the with the liturgical year and kind of try and understand, interpret, give you a, uh, maybe a model of how to try and interpret how the church gave us these readings for this time, mm. uh, how Daniel relates to this this end of the liturgical year as we go into this season of anticipation, but then also um, to go with uh, kind of the history of salvation and kind of read up on these readings and, and where they're coming from and the historical realities around them. So I'm going to highlight a book. It's also probably my shout out. Um, Let me just make the point oh. that Advent is a time of the sunrise. So this is a time of like growing hope and expectation where you're leading us perfectly into <laughs> expecting the, the revelation of Christ. Amen. So I think uh, I, was sit- I was sitting in this room at the Companion's house um, about four months ago, talking with some guys at one of our gatherings, and one of the guys had a question about Dune, the, the novel. And I started to, with name and date, accuracy describe the political situation the history the religious uh character of the dune universe oh you're you're a dune nerd and and i sat and laughed at myself and i realized i don't think i could do that with the davidic kingdom 
and the history of the Old Testament. Not yet. Not yet. And when I laughed about that, because I was like, obviously, my mind can do that. I just did it with, you know, the Dune universe. So I picked up this book called A Catholic Introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament, Volume 1, uh, Ignatius Press by uh, Brant Petrie and Dr. Bergsma, uh, theologian, scripture scholars. And they, it's a, it's a heavy book, but it's incredibly well organized. And you can, I was, we were going through the David um, story in Kings and Chronicles. Um, I think in Office of Readings. And I picked this up and I read what they had to say about those readings and that story uh, from a historical perspective, from kind of the Father's interpretations. They just do a really good job at situating you in the text, in the Bible, what the story was, who the characters are, what the the history around it was, what the expectations were, how it's been interpreted since. Um, and doing that has been just a lot of fun. Yeah, and I can now I can have an hour conversation with you about the historical cool. realities of the Persian Babylonian empires and Daniel with you because I'm starting to enter into this history, and it makes reading the scriptures so much more fun. Yeah, and so I offer that to if you're if you're looking for a way to engage the scripture, this is a great way to help guide you through the Old Testament, and you don't have to read it cover to cover to back because it's um what's it called Catholic introduction to the Old Testament a Catholic introduction to the Bible. Volume 1, Old The Test- Old Testament. <laughs> it's the best um, introduction to the Old Testament that I yeah. know of. And it's, you can jump into each book individually. It's got a great summary overview, and then you can go to individual like sections or stories. And Yeah. Well, as long as that's the shout-out, I will um, I will mention that um, Dr. Br- Brant Petrie also has a good video series that is uh, that can correspond with the lectionary and also just um, teaching videos on scripture, and they're phenomenal. He's a fantastic teacher and a great mind. And then um, Dr. John Bergsma out of Steubenville, he has a great series called Catholic Bible Basics for for Catholics, and I also taught with uh, Psalms Basics. Psalms Basics is one of the best. I taught that in uh, Giannamola, and he does this little, like, stick figure drawing of, like, how the... Yeah, he's got a lot uh, of animated stuff. And and you think, you read it, and you're like, this is so dumb, this is so kindergarten-y, and it sticks with you, and it creates a framework for you to work from. It's wonderful. It's brilliant. I made my students draw all the little pictures and learn it. It's (laughs) really smart pedagogy. Um, what do they say? If you can't teach it to a kindergartner, you don't actually know it. So I learned so much from those. <laughs> Just a framework is fantastic. Yeah. So I love them. Um, I, yeah, Steubenville. Shout out to Steubenville. I also want to shout out my uh, my aunt, Anne. She's a uh, inquisitive mind, kind of piercing intellect, asks really good questions. I was at Thanksgiving with um, her. She's the one with the orcs? She was the one with the orcs. <laughs> and uh, she and my cousin, Katie, um, and my parents and my younger brother drove out to Oregon to celebrate my, my grandma's 90th birthday. So shout out to Cecilia Ludzinski. Um, but when we're up there, my aunt was just asking all these great questions, but it was really keeping me on my toes and making me think and like really listen to her. So I was like, man, I'm kind of tired after this. I didn't, <laughs> this, this Thanksgiving break, I'm pretty tired. So shout out to her and shout out to uh, her husband, my uncle, Kevin, who's a Catholic historian. Oh, cool. uh, particularly he's focused on American history and the Catholic Church in America um, but I want to shout out to him and Brant Petrie and Bergsma and all the other academics who are doing really good work and not sensationalizing it 
because the sensational book and the sensational title sells a lot of copies and makes them a lot of money. But I want to shout out the ones who are doing really good work. Yeah. In a humble way that's trying Solid, to upbuild thorough. the kingdom and, and actually give good content to people. Yeah. So I'm done with my shout outs. Okay. My last two are doctors um, uh, Agostinus Gianto and Dr. Craig Mor- Morrison, who were my Aramaic professors of Daniel mm. and uh, helped a thesis I wrote on Daniel 10 as well. Cheers. God bless y'all. Have a wonderful Advent uh, and a Merry Christmas soon enough. Anything? All right. I don't know. Happy Advent. Send, us, send us your emails. Send us your questions. Pray for us. We'll pray for you. Take Amen. care. Amen.